Thank you for the great creativity of your questions. It's quite a range. And I, I grouped different ones together in ways that may not be obvious to you as I read them. But so where is the place of creativity in a practice of simply accepting things just as they are? You used intuition in your instructions. What do you mean by intuition? Where does intuition come from? Is it personal or impersonal? What are the mechanics of mindfulness that allow insights to arise? Are they known, or is it a mystery or element of grace? And what is the relation between consciousness and mindfulness? Consciousness arises in every moment of experience as the knowing of that experience. Is mindfulness an expanding or an informing of consciousness? So I thought these were these questions were all connected uh, in the understanding of intuition, of creativity, coming out of what we could call a deepening silence of mind. My experience uh, in the creative process uh, has been that the quieter my mind becomes, you know, when I drop down from the surface level of thoughts, there's a connection with, we could call it, in, we could call it intuition, we could call it intuitive wisdom, that's really coming out of the silence. I saw this a lot this past year. I, I went on retreat, kind of a writing retreat, as I was finishing uh, my new book. Um, and it was really a wonderful way to write. It probably was of less benefit to the retreat side, but to the writing side it was really helpful. Because I would just sit, and then I would, I would write, and then I would sit. And, you know, in a project like that, in a creative project, you just come up against places where you don't really know how to proceed. You don't know exactly where it's going, or you don't know the the proper sequence, and it was amazing to me over and over again where I would come up against a stumbling block. Then in the next sitting I would just sit and go into the silence and it would all come. It would just come intuitively, not by my thinking it out, not discursively. Out of the silence, out of the stillness. Where that comes from is a bit of a mystery to me, but I've had the experience often enough to trust that somehow we do have a place you know, of tremendous intuitive wisdom within us and it's simply getting quiet enough to access it rather than you know, simply being caught in the run of our thoughts. The reason I, I paired those two questions with the questions about mindfulness because clearly mindfulness is the way to access the deeper place of stillness. Because what does mindfulness mean? It means that presence of mind that's not scattered, as, as it says in the Abhidhamma, that doesn't float away like a cork on the surface you know, of, of water. It's that quality of mind that really goes deep 
in its awareness, in its attentiveness to experience. Concentration comes from the continuity of mindfulness. So the very practice we're doing of just paying attention and connecting in a in a full way, mindfulness, you know, really a fullness of mind, moment after moment, drops us into that place of greater stillness, out of which the creative, intuitive process happens. So it's quite amazing. So, there were a few questions about my personal life. <laughs> Some I'll read and some I won't. (laughs) What has been the experience or insight most recently in your practice that has deepened your understanding of Dharma? What do you consider your home or main tradition? Theravada, Vajrayana, Dzogchen, other, none? Do you personally still experience dukkha impingements? <laughs> and then there was another question which relates to my responses to some of these. Um, it w- they, were, they were useful questions because it, it was interesting for me to reflect. You know, okay, well, what, what actually has been kind of the, the most recent you know, understandings or unfolding of practice. I appreciated the question. Um, And it's really something that has been happening maybe over the last, you know, several years, quite a few years now, but I see it deepening each year uh, of my practice. And it really comes down for myself to the merging of two streams you could say streams of understanding or streams of direction. One is, and it's something I've talked about you know, over these years, uh, is the deepening appreciation for bodhicitta, uh, which really has come largely from the Tibetan side, you know, from the Tibetan teachings, which emphasize that mo- emphasize that a lot, and I'll be talking more in depth about bodhicitta, but it's basically, you know, that motivation, nurturing the motivation that we're not doing this for ourselves alone, you know, that our practice is not simply for our own awakening, although our, awake, our awakening is certainly the goal of our practice, but the motivation for that is not only for ourselves. As we plant the seed of bodhicitta, and it's expressed in many ways, and probably differently for each one of us, but for me, I express it, may I become liberated for the benefit of all beings. And that has had a really tremendous impact on the, the way I practice and the quality of my practice. And what I found by connecting with that and nurturing it, somehow it got me out of the trap of, 
to say this exactly, of a subtle reinforcement of self, even as one is practicing the understanding of selflessness. You know, because the path of Vipassana does just just straight Vipassana leads to insight into Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. You know, so that all happens. But at least for myself, I, I saw that there was kind of an overlay, and it, it, was, it was quite subtle. I didn't, I didn't really know it was there. Of practicing for those insights in some way for myself. You know, and I realized that, of course, as we, as we are more liberated, we'll definitely benefit everyone around us. I mean, who of us wouldn't like to be around, you know, in our hunt? But somehow putting the motivation of benefiting others at the beginning, you know, seeing that that can be the motivation rather than the consequence, that was that was tremendously opening and and in some level a a thin veneer of self that I hadn't even really seen just seemed to dissolve it seemed to fall away. this clear you know it, it just took it out of a self gaining idea and just okay, practice, let it unfold for the benefit of all. So that was one, that was one, and it's an ongoing, an ongoing exploration of that. The second aspect of my practice that has really changed a lot in recent years um, is coming to a greater and greater appreciation of simplicity. The simplicity of the practice being not clinging. You know, and so this goes to that other question, what do you consider your home tradition, Theravada, Dzogchen, Tibetan? I consider my tradition non-clinging. It's the non-clinging tradition. I mean, there's no school of Buddhism that says cling. <laughs> so I feel I'm very safe ground in this. And it really, when we see, or when we hold whatever particular method or technique we're using, and there are many, and this is the great, the tremendous gift of the Buddha, you know, to all of us, the vast array of skillful means. You know, and so for each one of us at different times, different methods and different skillful means will be helpful. But as a way of not getting caught in the method, and not creating sectarian views about method, if we see it all as skillful means for not clinging, it just gets very, very simple. So whatever you're experiencing, you're going through the day, and whether you're working with really focusing on the breath, or choiceless awareness, or anything, any way you're practicing, Keep in mind that that's the fundamental core. All the methods are in the service of not clinging.
Well, the, this last question was about bodhicitta, and where does this come in? Is it just a simple, kind heart? And what's your vision for Buddhism in the West? Can it make a difference at this time and age? Uh-huh. As I said, it's. I think that sometimes it's translated, and the Dalai Lama speaks of bodhicitta as you know, the kind heart, which is a beautiful expression of it. But I think in its fuller meaning, we can expand its meaning uh, so that it really feeds a certain aspiration. Because aspirations move us. Aspirations give us energy. They give us direction. You know, it's powerful to connect with our deepest value. In developing concentration, mindfulness, interrelationship, what are the helpful conditions in daily life? I think Suzuki Roshi talks of gradual awakening as being like walking through a dense fog and you don't think you're getting wet, but once inside you realize your clothes are soaked through. Do you have any view and could you talk about the potential for gradual awakening and in for gradual awakening and enlightenment, and enlightened living that might unfold through this diligent attending to the present moment. That is, even without satori or big insights, etc. You know, that image of Suzuki Roshi is so beautiful. It's just like you're walking through... I can't remember whether he said a dense fog or a mist. I think he said walking through a mist. You know, where you don't realize you're getting wet, but after some time you really are thoroughly soaked. It's such a good example, really, of what happens on the retreat here. You know, because from day to day or moment to moment, you may think nothing much is happening. It's just up and down and the mind's still wandering. And here I've been, you know, six weeks, five weeks, however long, what's been happening? And yet, and all of us, all of the, myself and my colleagues, have all commented on the amazing kind of dropping in you know, to a level of experience and a way of relating to experience you know, that is so moving and so beautiful. So it's like the mist of Dhamma is just, it's really soaking through. What supports this? You know, the development of mindfulness, concentration, wisdom out in the world. The Buddha was very, very explicit about this. And it's something you're all familiar with. But I think often we relegate it to a philosophic statement rather than really instructions for how to practice in our lives. And that is the Eightfold Noble Path. And for a long time, you know, after I had started meditation, I couldn't even remember the Eightfold Path. The only way I could remember it, I finally, when I 
had to give a talk on it. You know, so then kind of I got the eight steps and I... And I think it's, you know, it's maybe not that uncommon. Oh yeah, that's kind of the Buddhist's, you know, the Buddhist model. But really, when you look at each of the steps and how they relate to each other, it is a prescription for how we can practice in the world, in our lives. And how one leads to the other, you know, the, starting with the right understanding. You know, and first we start on a conceptual level. And of course, as you, as you realize, the Eightfold Path is like a spiral. You know, we keep spiraling around at deeper and deeper or higher and higher levels. So we start with the right understanding, you know, just some basic understanding of actions have consequences, some basic understanding of impermanence and suffering, and maybe even a glimpse of selflessness. And at first it may be just reflecting on it. And for people who are, who are experienced in practice, you know, we begin to get some realization of it. And out of the right understanding, we begin to see the importance of right thought. And actually the right thoughts come from a right understanding. When we understand karma, when we understand impermanence, when we understand suffering and its causes, thoughts of loving-kindness, thoughts of compassion, non-cruelty, thoughts of generosity, they start coming more often. They are the consequence of right understanding. And as we cultivate right thought, what happens? It leads to right speech. It leads to right action. I mean, every, each, each one is just the stepping stone to the next. It leads to right livelihood. These are all things actually to practice in our lives. You know, it's not, it's not just obviously for a retreat situation. And as we connect and actually practice right speech, right action, right livelihood... It actually becomes a way, or it provides the foundation for making the effort in concentration, in mindfulness. You know, out of those sila aspects, we're not so filled with remorse about our actions. So the mind actually has the capacity to be mindful and concentrate. So it's all—it's this wonderful stepping stones. Where does it lead? It leads to enlightenment. It leads to awakening. It leads to the highest possibility. And again, it comes down to great simplicity. It's not complicated. It's just doing it. There was a, a, a line from uh, His Holiness Karmapa. He said, we have to do what we know. And we know a lot of this. And so it's simply a question of doing it. Sometimes, uh, you know, the way the Buddhist teachings are structured in so many lists, you know, the Eightfold Path and the Five Hindrances and the Four Noble Truths and the Five Spiritual Powers and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment and the Ten Unwholesome Actions. And the <laughs> so there are a lot of lists. 
What I found is that the mind can kind of relate to the lists in two ways. Can relate to a list, oh, that's just another Buddhist list. Or we can see the the lists are an expression of the unbelievable clarity of the Buddha's mind. You know, so so that each of those lists, there's a tremendous power contained within them. It's not just like a, a philosophical you know, compendium. It's like this is the expression of how the Buddha distilled, you know, and gathered different aspects of our experience in a very systematic way. And so my experience has been that there's just, as I say, tremendous power in each one. The Eightfold Path just being one of those examples. And it actually does enliven or... It's the framework for Dharma practice in our lives. We can just do those steps. So, oh, I want to go back to one question that I didn't answer. Do you personally still experience dukkha impingements? <laughs> Because it made me think, okay, where's where's the real, you know, where are the hooks? And as I was looking back, you know, over the last months and saying, okay, where, where was I getting really hooked? I saw that almost all of it, almost all the times, you know, where I could feel that contraction in dukkha, it was all around one arena. And it made me realize how powerful, how powerful a conditioning it is. And I think probably I'm not the only one who feels this. They all had to do with attachment to view. You know, when I got caught, when I got caught in a conflict, almost always it came down to those times when I got really attached to my way of viewing things. And of course I was right. So, (laughs) but that's what the seduction was. That's precisely the seduction. (laughs) Of course this is the way to see it. (laughs) And it's amazing, just kind of, you know, when we look at our interpersonal conflicts, because that's a lot of where the dukkha is in our lives, you know, in one way or another. It was just striking to me to see that that's what was largely it. And so it becomes just again another reminder to practice a bit of letting go, you know, of, of such a strong attachment to view. It doesn't mean not having views. And what I saw was that. In those times when I could have a view and not be so attached to it, it allowed for the appropriate process to happen. You know, it was a process of dialogue or communication or whatever process was appropriate to the situation. 
And when I was very attached to my view, it's like that energy short-circuited the process, you know, and, and made the process confusing, which was the cause of a lot of the dukkha. So I think it's a very, a very fruitful area you know, to work with. And of course, the Buddha talked of attachment to view as being one of the four main attachments, you know, to sense pleasures, to views, to what he called rites and rituals, you know, and to self. And, of course, not only in ourselves and our own interpersonal relations, we see the disastrous consequences in the world of attachment to view. You know, where people become so caught and so obsessed to the point of tremendous violence and destruction. So I think it's extremely helpful and instructive to watch that tendency within ourselves because it's deeply rooted. And it's also clearly possible to do that even on a silent retreat. I'm sure you've had some inner dialogues (laughs) where attachment to view was flaming. And I remember times being on retreat it's ridiculous what the mind will do. Where I would imagine a future meeting with somebody being attached to my view in anticipation of what was going to happen in the meeting and in my mind getting into this whole big argument with this person. (laughs) It hadn't even happened. It wasn't even a memory of what happened. It's just my mind fabricating what might happen. You know, so that pattern is in there. To the degree that we can learn to see it clearly. You know, so we're not just simply caught up and swept away by it. Uh, It really is very freeing and, and saves us and others a lot of suffering. Die before you die, Ajahn Chah once said. But who wants to do this? It's a rare person who's willing to be vulnerable, let alone die. I'm reminded of your story about having to chant sutras in front of Suzaki Roshi. It was your very discomfort and embarrassment to which he responded compassionately. That kind of openness doesn't seem teachable. It's not simply a matter of mastering techniques. What advice do you have for cultivating this ability to stay open in the face of the unknown, which seems essential for our practice, our lives, and our deaths? And I'm afraid of dying and of, de- of the death. How can Vipassana help to live with this fear or to dissolve the fear? Or how can I learn to die now? Again, these questions are really, really good questions. Um, it would be really helpful well, there are a few different few different 
maybe steps or levels here. And they revolve around the same point. And that is, do we really have a fear of death? Or do we have the idea that we're afraid of death? So that would be the first thing to see. Because it would be easy to have the idea or the belief, I'm afraid of death but not necessarily have some experience of that fear. Is that clear? The difference between having an idea about ourselves, being afraid, and actually being afraid in any particular moment. So that's one piece. The other piece is the same understanding. Even if we actually do connect with the experience of fear, it's not just an idea, We are actually connecting with the experience of fear of dying. It would be very interesting to look and see if in that moment what's really happening is that we are afraid of our idea about dying. You know, we all have some notion or some idea of what dying will be like or the experience, the experience of death. But until we're actually in that moment, we're not experiencing it. And so if we have a fear of death, in my experience, it's always a fear about our idea of death. So to see if that's the case, this is, I'm suggesting that you just look to see if this is what's going on. To see that we can have a very different relationship to thoughts about death. Those are just thoughts. Those are just our ideas. They're arising and passing away. We don't have to get so locked in to our believing those thoughts. Those are just arising in the moment and passing away. And it may be possible at those times. You know, you're sitting or you're in your life and there's what you're experiencing as a fear of dying. Really look to see what's going on then. So you don't you don't stay simply in the superficial perception, oh, I have a fear of dying. But in that moment, you really see what is it that's happening that you're afraid of. And unless you are actually on the point of death in that moment, it will be an idea that you have of death. Well, that makes it much more workable. Okay, so then the question, and as Ajahn Shah said, die before you die. So much of our practice of Vipassana is refining our awareness of the momentary 
birth and death. It's like that's happening every moment with experience. You know, and at first we see it in grosser ways, you know, in-breath and out-breath. You know, or thoughts arising or sensations arising and passing away. As the mindfulness and concentration get more refined, ah, the NPMs go way up. NPMs means noticings per minute. You know, where we really begin, just the mind gets so focused and so sharp that we're seeing just this incredibly rapid arising and dissolution of phenomena and even the knowing mind. So that, you know, as people first go through that, can be terrifying. Because there is no security and there's no stability and there's no place to take a stand. But as we go through that experience and develop, you know, at the far end of it, some equanimity, it gives us the taste of a possibility of what the mind could be like at the time of physical death. The mind that is not grasping, it's not holding, it's just openness. It's from the Buddhist teaching, and again, I don't have recollection of my last life and death, so now I'm just passing on the teachings about it. In terms of the continuity and the rising and fall of consciousness, rising and passing away, it's really no difference. It's described as the last moment in the last life is death consciousness, first moment in this life is rebirth consciousness. So the continuity, according to the teachings, just goes on. So to the degree, to the degree that we can see the momentariness within this life, and we actually have that stability of awareness at the time of death, it may not be any different. It may just be that same process going on. And so in this way, and in in many other ways as well, I feel that the training that we're doing here is in a way a training for dying, a training of our minds to be able to rest in that place of non-clinging of non-grasping, of non-aversion, of non-resistance. I mean, if we can't do it now, why do we think we're going to be able to do it then, at the time of death? Maybe we will, maybe some special circumstance will arise, but I think there's a much greater likelihood of dying with that quality of openness if we actually have practiced it seems better odds. You know, and so what we're doing here seems directly relevant to that. So then there's the aspect of the question, how can we stay open? As Sasaki Roshi, most of you probably know that story of my, my chanting story with him, but rather than repeat the whole story, I was just in a situation on the session of you know, going in and, and in response to a koan, trying to chant some sutras and kind of 
making a complete fool of myself. <laughs> that was that's the basic gist of the story. <laughs> and in that moment, I, where I felt completely exposed and vulnerable, and I mean, it was from my perspective, it was a totally awful moment. And he just and he's a pretty fierce teacher. You know, he's, but in that moment, he just looked at me and he said, "Oh, very good." You know, and it was really an incredible moment because, precisely because I was just so open and exposed and vulnerable, you know, so his words just totally touched my heart because there was nothing, I wasn't protecting it at that point. So the question that was asked tonight was how do you get to that place of openness with another person? You know, like from the side of Suzaki Roshi. You know, how do you get to that place of really being able to see and touch other beings? And for me, there's one practice that has really served well and has, both when I remember and can do it, has been very transformative in terms of relating to people and the degree of openness. And that is um, in being with other people in the range of you know life situations, especially you know when there are difficulties, to drop down from the level of personality and to drop down even from the level of action. to the level of simply seeing the suffering that's there. You know, because why do people you know, express difficult personalities or abrasive personalities or, or do harmful actions? You know, it's so easy to be reactive on the personality action level. We just see it and we don't like it. And we, so that's our own closing off. Or we see an action and we judge it. You know, and again, this there's a really closing off in separation. The times that I've been able to drop down from that and really look at that person, and of course we can do this with ourselves as well, and just see the suffering that's there. And how it's the suffering that is really the cause and condition for the harmful actions or the difficult personality traits. It's amazing what that does. It's, it really touches our own heart and allows the compassionate response because we're responding to the suffering rather than responding or reacting to the personality. And it doesn't mean we don't respond. We sometimes, you know, in different situations, sometimes it's soft and loving response which is needed. Sometimes it's, you know, forceful response that's needed but it comes from a place of compassion rather than our reactivity. Was this clear, what I meant by dropping down? And, re- and what I saw, and it was just so interesting to me that it really had to do with opening my eyes. <laughs> you know, because it's right there in front of us. But when we're so busy, caught in our own internal reactive process, we are not seeing. It's like we just, 
We're seeing through the filter of our own reaction. And we can take that filter off and just see. See what's in front of us. When a person is suffering, it's totally obvious. If we're open, if we're not caught in our own view, our own reaction. You know, and I think going back to the story with Suzaki Roshi, I mean, I, I assume and, you know, that that was the state he, he was in then and probably often. Just not having an agenda of his own and just seeing the suffering that was in front of him, namely me. <laughs> you know, it's just, there it was. You know, and the openness of the response is compassion. So it's, I think it's just a wonderful practice to do. Uh oh, here we get to some, here we get to some hard ones. Could you elaborate on what it means to realize Nibbana? Would you please talk about the importance of aiming for Nibbana, setting one's mind upon that goal? And how is that done skillfully? It seems one works hard at meditation to create the conditions to taste the unconditioned, for the unconditioned to arise. Then the the taste lasts, I've been told, but a moment. That one is also told this is different than conditioned phenomena which are impermanent, conditioned, and thus unsatisfactory. Please comment. <laughs> P.S. Maybe I should just wait and find out for myself. <laughs> <laughs> we hear over and over that the Buddha was awake. From time to time I too am awake. <laughs> Apart from duration, is the Buddha's being awake different from my being awake? If so, how? If not, what's the big deal? (laughs) What happens after we're free? Shouldn't we know this going in so we can decide? Whether to stay a little bound to reserve some fun. (laughs) So. (laughs) Okay, I'll just kind of talk from some different angles and see, see if it all somehow makes some sense. In terms of, well, let me start with this image, going to the question of if the taste of Nibbana or the realization of Nibbana, you know, it's just like a glimpse or a a momentary taste, why isn't that as impermanent as, as anything else? 
Well, an image which might sort of elucidate that would be that of, you know, it's, it's a cloudy day and the clouds are all obscuring the sun and then there's a momentary break in the clouds and the sun shines through and then the clouds come together again. So from the perspe- our perspective, so to speak, it's just a momentary glimpse of the sun. But it's not that the sun or the sunlight is in, you know, in this, using this image, is impermanent. That's always there. It's just often obscured. And so we can get a glimpse of it, you know, in a moment where it's not obscured, then the kalesis come back in. But it's not that Nibbana, the unconditioned, has gone away. That's always there. It's just that we're no longer seeing it. Uh, So the fact of our realization of it being perhaps just for a moment or moments at a time doesn't mean that it's momentary. It just means that obscuring forces have come back in. In terms of our moments of wakefulness as opposed to the Buddha's wakefulness, of course, All I can share with you are my own conjectures about what the Buddha's wakefulness uh, is about. But an image which uh, some of the Tibetan teachers have used, which I think points to a way of understanding. They said the difference between kind of a momentary glimpse you know, of the unconditioned and full realization, full enlightenment. It would be like you know, having living in a living in a house on top of a hill or on top of a mountain. Uh, and there are four walls and there there are you know, maybe one or two windows, small windows in the house. And you can look out the window and kind of get a sense of the expanse. But just imagine for yourself the difference in your experience between living in the house and looking out through a small window. The difference between that experience and the walls of the house collapsing and just being totally in the openness of that experience. You know, it would be, be a very different experience kind of a narrow view of what's there and separated separated on most sides from the walls, you know, but we just get a, as I say, narrow view of it, or the walls being completely gone. And the sense of openness, the sense of freedom, the sense of unobstructedness. So that might be one way of understanding the difference between our momentary moments of wakefulness and full realization. There's another, another way of understanding the difference. And this, this to me is one of the most subtle and interesting explorations of the mind in terms of suffering and freedom. And it has to do with the description 
of different levels of defilements. Um, there's the grossest level of defilement that really causes, is strong enough to cause action. You know, we really do unwholesome action in the world. So that's, that's quite a strong force in the mind that leads us to action. A middling level of defilement, you know, the forces of greed or hatred or delusion, which are arising in the mind, but they don't, they're not strong enough to cause expression in action. Okay, so that's, we're still, we're still kind of suffering the experience of them, but they're not as powerful you know, or as forceful in the mind. The most subtle level of defilement, and here's where I find it gets very interesting, is what is called latent defilements. And that is defilements that are not there in the present moment, but the potential for them to arise given the right conditions is there. And there's one story which uh, is in the I think it's in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Middle Land Sayings. It's in one of the suttas. There was, this was, the, the Buddha was telling the story about, you know, some previous time in one of the ancient Indian cities. And he said there was a woman in the city who was renowned for her, uh, you know, her calm and her wisdom and her patience and um, but her, her maidservant wanted a test. You know, she wanted to really see whether the mistress, and I've, I've, Vedika, I think, was her name. She wanted to test Mistress Vedika. And so the maidservant started, and remember, this is in the cultural context you know, of, of ancient India. Uh, so the maidservant started getting up later and later each morning you know, and didn't prepare the fire, prepare the, whatever her duties were. So one day, two days go by, and the mistress, Mistress Vedaka, you know, first says, you know, why aren't you getting up? And then the maidservant keeps getting up later and later each morning. And after time, Mistress Vedaka gets angry and angry. And the end of the story being, you know, she starts hitting her with her rolling pin. <laughs> yeah, and then the, the maidservant goes out. You know, running out into the streets, announcing to all the neighbors, look at this calm and compassionate being. Oh, when I first read that sutta, I, I was surprised at my own reaction because I had a kind of sympathy for Mistress Vedika. Not to the point of kind of hitting over the head with a rolling pin, but, you know, if we're counting on somebody to fulfill certain responsibilities and they don't, for no apparent reason, you know, just because they're sleeping late. And they do it one day, two days, three days, a week. I could see myself getting pretty annoyed. <laughs> you know, it seemed like a reasonable response. But of course, the Buddhist point is something quite different. He's saying that freedom, genuine freedom, cannot be dependent on conditions because then it's not freedom. 
you know and so even in circumstances where we might feel totally justified in you know venting our ill will from the perspective of realization from the perspective of nibbana from the perspective of ultimate freedom we're not free if that still arises and those actions arise out of this level of latent defilement. And that's why it's so interesting. You know, that we may be going along fine when conditions are suitable you know, or agreeable, but then we find ourselves in situations that are not, and the potential you know, can be activated. So when we look at the difference between the wakefulness of the Buddha and our moments of wakefulness, we might consider, and really, I guess what's, what's really interesting to me is the question of how one explores latent defilements, because they're not actually arising in the moment. It's just a potential You know, and so somehow to get a sense or an intuition of how this potential for defilement is still keeping the mind bound in some way or unfree in some way, even when it's not activated. And that's the difference between our moments of wakefulness and the Buddha's wakefulness, where even the latent defilements have been eliminated. You know, and so maybe you know we can get a sense of just the extraordinary the extraordinary quality of freedom. Because that freedom is unshakable. There's nothing left to cause the defilements to arise. So it's just interesting. You know, this is a this is a vast undertaking. You know, what we're doing it's you know this, you know, you wouldn't be here if you didn't. This exploration of the mystery of our minds and awareness and all these levels of how suffering is created and the possibility of freedom, this is not a kind of a weekend enlightenment intensive. <laughs> and it's not even a three-month enlightenment intensive. You know, this is... This is a vast journey we're on. Uh, but that's what, for me, is so incredibly inspiring about it. Because we're really working, you know, at just the deepest roots of what causes suffering for ourselves and for the world. So it's, it's a tremendously... I don't even know the right word. It's just noble thing to be doing. It's clearly what the world needs. Okay, there, there are many more questions than I have time for. Actually, it's, I think I'll just end with one question that will probably have tremendous meaning for some of you 
and be completely meaningless for others. Did Barry Bonds break Mark McGuire's home run record? (laughs) He did. (laughs) 73. So maybe you can have some sympathetic joy <laughs> for him anyway. So why don't we sit for a few minutes? <laughs> If it's something you connect with for yourselves, practice planting and watering the seed of bodhicitta. That aspiration, that our practice, that our lives be for the benefit and for the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.